Welcome to Watershed's February podcast. My name is Mark Cosgrove, cinema curator here at Watershed, and joined by Steph Reed, who is the cinema programme assistant. Uh, and we've also got two guests with us for this edition. Um, we have Dr. Raina Dennison, Professor of Film and Digital Arts at Bristol University, who's joining us to talk about all things Japan, um, as we've got the Japan Foundation Touring Programme. Plus, we've also got Japanese director Hirokatsu Koreeda's new film, Broker, opening this month, and I'm sure we'll touch on that. Um, and we're also going to be joined by, in the second half, we're going to be joined by Harriet Taylor, who runs the Trans and Non-Binary Creatives Meetup here at Watershed and has put together a fantastic season looking at gender in film linked with the release of Joyland, um, which also opens this month. Um, and we'll talk more about that later. But first, um, thanks for joining us, Raina. Very, very much my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. And I think we, we, we had you here last time, we've had you a couple of times talking about um, <laughs> Japanese cinema is your specialism. Um, and it's great having you in the city and when we've got Japanese films, um, great having your um, thoughts on them. Um, and what strikes me uh, about the Japan Foundation Touring Programme, which is in its 20th year, mm-hmm. its 20th anniversary, I think Watershed's um, been a part of it for those, all those 20 years, I think. Um, but we've certainly, um, for, for a number of years, and what I've seen is a kind of incredible growth, which is really heartening and interest um, in the tour. Yes, it's been building steam for quite a while now. It's been yeah, great to and, see. And what also, but what also really surprises me, and I see a lot of films, um, festivals, and you know, aware of a lot of international film, and it always, always surprises me when I get the list of films that come through. I don't know that one. I don't know that one. Yeah. I don't know that one. And you realise how little of contemporary Japanese cinema, and actually older, mm-hmm. but contemporary Japanese cinema that we see here. I know. It's, it's, I was saying a little while ago, I think, possibly I said this last time I was on, but it is my perpetual frustration is Japan makes over 300 to 400 films a year, and we get maybe two or three of them if we're lucky. Without something like the Japan Foundation Touring mm. Programme, we would miss so much of what's going on. And it really is a window onto what Japanese cinema is really like. Mm. There's there's a tendency, of course, in the UK for us to get the the big art film that's won at Cannes or Venice. Mm. Which is often Koreeda. Or often Koreeda <laughs> these days, yes. Um, but the other films, the popular films, the films by yeah. women, the films by queer directors, we don't see unless we have something like this touring program. So it's an absolute joy. Mm. And and I think also there's there's little windows onto things like Japanese comedy through the touring mm. program that we hardly ever get without and, and these can be by really big directors, but mm. these films just don't make it over here otherwise. There's a there's there's just not been the audience for mm. them and that's what the touring program is doing so well is building that audience year after year so that people know mm. they will see good, interesting mm. films if they come. Have streaming platforms had any impact in making these films more available? I don't get the sense it has, but I've, mm. I've not really sort of researched it much. So people like Coriada, directors like Coriada are getting a little bit more visibility. 
the BFI is doing a good job of, of getting the classics mm. out. Criterion Collection is putting the classics out still on DVD and Blu-ray mostly. Mm. But other there's a big gap there between the kind of classics and the very the popular mainstream. Yeah, it? it's the popular yeah. mainstream, and we we get little glimpses of it through mm. things like manga adaptations into live action mm. cinema. Um, we of course, get, that's the thing, is animation is yeah, the big thing that we, we, we know about Japanese cinema. Yeah. Yes, and, and that's obviously got much more of a presence. It has its own bespoke streaming platforms. Mm. Um, Netflix is doing a good job of picking up some of the films associated with popular anime. Um, but there are these big gaps, and the gaps tend to be around the less obvious forms of art cinema. Mm. And certainly we don't see anything of the avant-garde documentary. Mm. We don't mm. see anything of the, mm. we see virtually none of the women's films, mm. in women's cinema of, by female directors that are coming out. Um, and so that's where something like the touring program is really helping to, to bridge the gaps mm. for us. They do bring across popular big franchise movies as well, which are a joy unto themselves, but they also have this, this kind of more serious underpinning as well mm. about trying to show how Japanese cinema represents the whole of Japan. So, so it's a real um, opportunity to get a snapshot. Yeah. Um, and we, 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 we've been unable to take, for space reasons, unable to take all the programme. Um, there is a, a flyer leaflet in, in Watershed that if you pick up, you'll see all the films because it's touring lots of different cinemas across yeah. the UK. We, we've got eight um, that were screening. Um, and you gave us some tip-offs, I, I remember, um, <laughs> last year on, it's it, always when I get us at Rainer, what do you think we should, <laughs> what do you think we should show? So um, just, just if, if, if you want to just give us a sketch of, you know, what, what the films that were shown and I, I mean, I can, I can certainly do a, a couple of big highlights for me this year. Um, one is, and again, I've been talking a lot about women directors so far, I think that's become a bit of a, a repeat for me, a repeated refrain um, since we did the um, the Tanaka films um, over the summer. Um, but the big movie that's coming out for me is um, Under the Sky. So it's a big movie on a couple of different levels. So we've got Miwa Nishikawa, who um, came through as the director of photography, the cinematographer for Hirokazu Koreeda. So there's a Koreeda connection mm -hmm. there. Her films are beautiful, and she's been making them since the early 2000s. Um, she started working with Koreeda as a university student in 1998 on his film Afterlife. Um, but then she started making her own films. She's also a novelist, so she's got that kind of very auteur-oriented sort of approach to filmmaking. I started watching her films in 2006 with Dear Doctor, which is based on a novel that she wrote, and it's a wonderful expose of the, the kind of distinctions between rural life and city life in Japan. It's got all the elements of slow cinema that people love from Koreeda as well. Um, but this year she's teamed up with a much bigger star in Koji Yakusho. Um, and most people who go to the, the watershed will know Koji Yakusho, whether they, they are aware of it or not. He came, I think, probably to international acclaim first with Shall We Dance back in the 1990s. Oh, yeah. yeah, of course. And then was in Shohei Mamura's The Eel. Mm. Um, but he's also appeared in Babel. Um, <laughs> he's one of the actors in mm. Babel. But, and Memoirs of a Geisha, <laughs> if you remember that interesting film. Um, so there's, there's a big star at the center of this movie. And 
I think it's a really interesting way of bringing together her interests in cinematography and in lighting with his wonderful performance style. So it's a, a lovely expose of how people who have been in prison in Japan kind of try to reconnect to the world once they come out of prison. And there's there's really interesting things going on there, I think, in terms of the way Japanese society has seemed to be fragmenting into groups and, and more and more niche um, elements of society. So there's really nice ways of it trying to kind of bring people back together and talk about human relationships in in realist ways, very similar to Corrieda's approach mm -hmm. to filmmaking. Well, that's whetted my appetite. Um, so that's on in the 5th of February, Under the Open Sky. The other big one I was hoping we could talk about for me, and this is just a joy to see that you've selected it, so thank you for this, is Yoji Yamada's film, What a Wonderful Family, um, which is nothing like the Japanese title, which is Kazuko wa Tsuraiyo, which means families are really, like, it's hard to be in a family, or families <laughs> are difficult. Right. Um, and that's a pun on his earlier series of films, um, Otoko wa Tsuraiyo, It's Difficult to Be a Man, um, which, is one of the most, it's, I think it's still the Guinness world record of the longest running film franchise with a single star at the helm. Um, so there are 48 of these films, often called the Torah-san films in English. And they get released in cinemas or is it for television? No, these are all four cinemas. Four there cinema were two of them a year between 1969 and 1995. And the franchise only stopped because the main star, Kiyoshi Atsumi, um, died. So he died in 1996, and that's why the franchise ended. But n not a lot of those have made it outside of Asia. And instead, we know Yoji uh, Yamada for his work on Twilight Samurai, The Hidden Blade, and Love and Honor in the early 2000s, which is a series of three samurai films from the kind of bakumatsu, or end of the, the samurai era period. Just as Japan is opening up to the West, these films are all set in a period of real turmoil. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're absolutely wonderful, kind of glossy art movies, but they are completely different to what Yoji Yamada is known for in Japan, which are these comedies, these light comedies um, with Kyoshi, Kyoshi Atsumi playing Torasan. Each one of these movies has a different female star, usually a young, beautiful female star, and they're set in a different part of Japan. So it's it's a bit like a travelogue series where Torasan, who's a bookseller, will go to different places in Japan and you'll get different food cultures, different social cultures kind of coming up. But it's it's a wonderful series just as a kind of snapshot mm. of how Japan is changing from the 1970s onwards. Um, and you, this, obviously, you obviously don't need to know uh, oh, uh, no, any you, of the other ones no, in order to this is, get this. So this is basically Yoji Yamada in What a Wonderful Family restarting his comedy career his comedy directing career. And so this is a, a comedy about family. It starts with um, a husband giving a party for his wife as she serves him with divorce papers. So <laughs> it's very much about contemporary that's Japanese a great, a family. Start. Yeah, it's a great happy start to a comedy. But it's a, it's a really nice, again, it's a really nice expose of the tensions within contemporary Japanese families and the way different agendas are being pulling the Japanese family in different directions for the last 
20 or 30 years, mm. there are now three of these films. This is the first one that we're getting. Mm. So it's it, another film series of comedies that he right. started in <laughs> Japan that's been hugely popular. So yeah, I'm really glad it's coming. Great. <laughs> and that's that's on um, What a Wonderful Family is on the 12th of Sunday, the 12th of February. And I think you've also got in amongst the other films you've chosen, and I'll, I'll talk about them a little bit less because I'm, I'm aware we are short on time. Yeah, and th th those are obviously your those are my two, two your, highlights. Your two yeah. highlights. You're looking forward to seeing them. Well, that and um, Sadao Yamanaka's The Million Real Pot from 1935. Mm. It's a really great opportunity to see this film on a big screen. Mm. And it'll be the first time I've seen it on DVD, but not on the big screen. Mm. And this is really exciting. Um, this is a filmmaker again whose career was cut short. He made 26 films in his filmmaking career in just six years, <laughs> working in the studio system in Japan in the, between 1932 and 1938. He joined the Japanese Imperial Army and unfortunately died in 1938 in Manchuria. Um, despite having made 26 films, only three of them survive today right. in anything like Incredible. Um, yeah. four size and length. Mm. So he's probably most famous for Humanity and Paper Balloons from 1937. So it's a really rare opportunity for us to see another of his films, which mm. is a lot of fun. It's it's a, a great movie and I, I think people will really love it. It's It's got a lot of really interesting different kinds of Japanese acting. We're used to maybe Koreeda's naturalistic style mm. of acting and this is way more theatrical. <laughs> Um, lots of really great makeup choices, and it's it's very interesting, very different. It, it's it's great that they do the the Japan Foundation have mm -hmm. um, archive films or films from kind of earlier, just to sort of remind you that there is that there's there's more to the Japanese history of film than the big figures of Kurosawa or oh, Ozu yeah. or you know the and we just had a, a, a fantastic success with Kurosawa's uh, Rashomon. Yes. Um, that we screened last month. Um, so I would urge people if you if you like you know if you like those, then try and see some of the. Um, we'll try and see this as 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 you know somebody that was working in early, yeah, earlier. And, and Yamanaka is he's in this Japanese studios at the same time as people like Ozu, so he is very much a contemporary of, the, of them. Yeah. yeah, great. So that's just three of the eight films that were going to be shown. Um, over February um, and go to the website watershed.co.uk to um, find out more. Um, but that's really, uh, as I say, whetted the appetite, um, given a bit more flesh in the bones um, of films that might be unfamiliar. Um, well, I'm sure will be unfamiliar, unfamiliar to me, so it'll be, I'm sure it'll be unfamiliar <laughs> to a wider audience. But, but interestingly, you mentioned families um, and you know the tensions that are within families and you mentioned Hirokatsu Koreeda um, and we've got his new film, uh, Broker, which opens this month, which interestingly is not filmed in Japan, mm -hmm. but is filmed in South Korea. You know, he has made film in France recently, but um, his shoplifters, um, I remember, is very much about deconstructing the f or finding a, a happier family elsewhere outside this, the, this, the, the constrictions of the traditional family. And he, here with Broker, he's, he's dealing with that subject again. Yes, absolutely he is. And in a really, it's it's typical Koreeda in some ways in that the focus of this film is children. 
um, disenfranchised, dispossessed, displaced children. And that's really common in well, films. And, and unwanted. And unwanted in some cases. Yeah. yeah, in some cases, but although... Wanted but unwanted. Yeah. And this is, this is the kind of story that happens as the film unfolds. Um, so this is built around the idea of what in South Korea are known as the baby boxes. So it was started by a pastor in Korea. This is kind of attached to American ideas of the safe haven law, where you can, if you have a child you can't care for, leave it on the church doorsteps and they will be taken care of, no questions asked. And it's a similar sort of thing with the baby boxes. And this is an idea that is in Japan as well with the baby hatches in churches. Mm. So it's a, it's a kind of common thread that links between Japanese and Korean culture, and it makes for something that would be a story starting point that would be recognizable to international audiences as well. So very typical Koreeda to find something to talk about around the family that mm. is becoming more universal while at the same time being very specific mm. to particular cultures and the way mm. they operate. Um, it's, it's such a fascinating film, this one for me. It's almost like a reteaming of the team that made Parasite and some of the biggest hits of recent Korean cinema. So you've got people who worked on Train to Busan and Snowpiercer. Um, you've got people who worked on Squid Game, as well as a lot of people who worked on Parasite, mm. all coming back together to work under Koreeda to make this film. Um, the way he tells the story is that he came up with the idea about six years ago after making like Father Like Son in 2013, there's some some disagreement in the, the sources about when the film started. But roughly, this has been a film six years in the making. He started off by talking to Song Kang-ho, who I'm sure everybody knows because he was the, the dad of the criminal gang in Parasite, but he's also been in The Host, The Good, The Bad and The Weird, Snowpiercer and various other films from South Korea lately. So he starts, you know, Koreeda starts by talking to Song Kang-ho and about making a film together possibly and then it all seems to come together as he starts talking to more and more actors mm. after the success of parasite and surprisingly <laughs> after the success of parasite <laughs> and the key to this seems to me to be um, the cj enm studio in mm. south korea which is where they made parts of parasite mm. um, and having made parts of parasite there there's a, a kind of locus for talent to come together so there's a good collective um, working out of that studio and that along with the production company Zip Cinema are able to bring this team back together to work with Koreeda. Um, he claims that translation and, and working across cultures was no problem but again he's got a long-standing relationship with some of the actors mm -hmm. in this movie. Um, so Bay Duna, the one of the main female actresses in the film, is also the star of Air Doll that Koreeda made um, about 10 years ago now. So in that one, it's a manga adaptation and she plays um, a blow-up doll that comes to life. <laughs> you know, I always remember that as being, when I look back at Koreeda's um, filmography, it sort of jumps out as, oh yeah, he made that as well. He made that as well, yeah. <laughs> he makes the rest. It's, <laughs> everyone thinks of Koreeda and thinks of family in these movies mm. that are all about you know, kind of different modes of family and different relationships between generations. And then there's Erdogan. <laughs> and I think Wonderful Life is a little like that as well. It's another outlier for him. So he does move back and forth between adaptations and, and between ideas.
Because what what he he does brilliantly, I think, in in Broker, like he did in Shoplifters, is he 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 takes characters that would are, are kind of from the other side of the tracks. Yeah. That you kind of should be going. Actually, these are not very nice people, you know. Mm-hmm. These are not. But actually, they they are they they are they develop as a family that are actually more supportive, and they get yeah. more warmth, more humanity, as it were. And um, because, of course, you, it, it, I'm not giving anything away, but you, you, you know, they they are then um, they are dealing with the unwanted, uncared for uh, babies left in the box and and finding them happy homes. Um, in effect, but you, yeah. you, 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 you are trying to. <laughs> yeah, but, but the fact that they're sort of working in a, 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 a in the black market, mm-hmm. um, but he he makes you he, he he you warm to them through the performances, through the yeah. script, through everything. But you 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 warm to this new family that's being presented. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a, there's either a deconstruction in Coriada's films of the family or a construction of the family in his films, and this one is very much in the in the vein of others where like shoplifters where people are coming together and forming bonds they're not about blood they're about caring and the fact that he's able to give these rather disreputable brokers um, mm. who take these babies from the boxes and try try to fight, try to sell them to mm. homes um, and turns that into a quest to find a loving home and a, a loving family for an abandoned baby is really, I think it's it's archetypal almost of the kinds of films Coriade has been making lately. It's it's certainly for me a, a condensation of some of the themes we've seen in his recent movies, particularly Shoplifters, mm-hmm. but also things like Father Like Son, which is about babies who are swapped and not in the families they were um, biologically connected mm-hmm. to. So there's these these themes that are running through his movies about dislocation in the family. And here, I think it's a really nice way of telling a story about people who should be villains becoming Mm. (sighs) changed by their interactions with children Mm. and and that purity narrative of Mm. children making everyone better around them is is really something that I've seen in Japanese cinema for a long time now. the most obvious example being something like Tokyo Godfathers by Satoshi Kon, where three homeless people find a baby on Christmas Eve, I think it is, and, and look to return it to its parents. Mm. So this this theme and of it lost teaches and them more than they can ever indeed, uh, ever yes. <laughs> indeed. <laughs> and I think we've got a similar sort of yeah. trope going on here. Yeah. Um, so there's a there's a lineage to these yeah. these sorts of stories, and, which is and, really and there's a likeness to it and a comedy to it. Yeah, that is kind of slightly disarming at times, yeah. but wonderful. Yeah, I agree yeah. completely. Yeah, there's there's something about Song Kang Ho's performance in this, and mm. Corrida has talked about this, where he's the actor is known for having kind of two different modes of performance: one being comedic, and the other being kind of more serious, mm. villainous, edgy kind of roles. And here we get both kind of put together mm. and then one is allowed to shine through as the other one steps is is pulled back so it's it's a lovely kind of dualist performance in in this film great and broker opens 24th of february thank you very much then. <laughs> of course um and say go to watershed.co.uk um for all the information thank you very much Rena.
thank you very much for having me. It's always great to talk about Japanese cinema. Thank you very much, Raina. Uh, and now we're joined by Harriet, Harriet Taylor, um, who said earlier, uh, runs the Trans and Non-Binary Creative Meetup here at Watershed. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Now you, Harriet, pitch the season. We, we get pitch seasons um, quite a lot. Actually, not quite a lot, a lot. <laughs> uh, and we've got, you know, finite space. I, I do want, always say I want more screens, um, as Steph knows. Uh, but we do get pitched a lot. And I always think to myself, my, my first question is, why this, why, why now? You know, why? And I ask the person, why this, why now? And sure. We, did, we, did, we put you through that test, Harriet, um, uh, a few months back when you came up with the idea of exploring uh, gender on screen. And also the other thing I say is, um, is there a budget? How can you cover the, can we cover some of the, how can we cover some of the costs? And you went away and came back, great season of films that we're going to talk about. Um, but the why now part, I mean, we could have done it because the whole discussion around identity and gender is so, you know, kind of uh, uh, current. Um, but I, I like things to be linked with the films that were opening. And it just so happened. Um, the stars aligned and um, the film Joyland is opening this month in February, which is the Pakistani drama, um, written and directed by Saim Sadiq, um, which explores trans identity in Pakistan. Um, and one uh, was screened at the Cannes Film Festival last year, where it won the jury prize. Um, and it then was banned in Pakistan, and then unbanned in Pakistan. Um, and it's now it's nominated for an Oscar. Um, it, it's a fantastic film, and it opens in February, so it was just a kind of perfect context for your season. Um, so as I say, the stars aligned. Um, but first, let, let's talk about the the season that you put together. If you want to, just sort of talk through what, how it how it came about, and and the titles. Talk us through um, the titles that you're screening. Sure. Um, so the way the season came about, there was actually no one origin point for it. It's kind of a sort of connection of various threads. Um, so it's probably no mystery to the both of you that I'm here quite a lot, seeing a lot of the watershed programming. And we're very pleased about that. We like it when, <laughs> like it when people come to come to the cinema and watch lots of films. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's always, you know, one of the best places to be, right? Um, but what I had noticed in sort of like the past year or so is that there was kind of this um, empty space where trans programming wasn't necessarily front and centre outside of sort of Pride Month. Um, so it was sort of an initiative to kind of get that on screen more throughout the year and to make this community feel a bit less tokenised in the sort of um, cinematic canon, I suppose. And then also, like, there's been sort of various debate going on in Watershed as well around inclusivity, um, particularly with regards to sort of toilet gate and things like that. So I think there was just this kind of opportunity to address certain things that were going on that were very relevant to this community just coming into the building, basically. There's a historical overview element that you're looking at in, this, in the, the season. Tell us about the films. Yeah, so... Gender representation on screen, um, it's not always been great. 
Um, I think we can pretty much agree on that point. And the interesting thing about this season is that I kind of didn't want to focus on it from the side of things where we've been represented entirely positively. Um, so we've got some kind of uncomfortable uh, screenings as part of this season, probably most notably Brian De Palma's Dress to Kill, um, which I would definitely like to say a bit more about because I feel like that's one of the films in this season that requires a bit more discussion. Um, it was controversial at the, at the time when, mm. it, when it was released and I haven't seen it for a long time, but I'm no doubt it's not lost any of that controversial. For sure. I mean, I believe that even uh, back when it was initially screened in the 80s, um, you know, there, there were sort of women's rights organisations that were coming out and saying that this film is transphobic, it's misogynistic. Um, and these are the things that you just kind of can't escape in that debate, you know, because um, it is these things. But also, it's probably one of my problematic faves. Um, there's just something about the way De Palma films that I, I just can't help but be drawn to. Um, so it's kind of just being like, there isn't a sort of binary with this where you have to really love a film and really hate a film. Sometimes it can be this murky gray area in between where you can recognize a fault, but you can still enjoy it for kind of other aspects. I, I thought that was what's great about including Dress to Kill in there because you're kind of looking straight at the challenge in that in that film and as you say there's lots of pleasures to it but it's it's uncomfortable so um you know I, that's what I, I say that's what i liked about having that that you put that in the season yeah and i think it just you know it addresses a very um true reality for mm. um the trans and non-binary community in particular that um there are certain assumptions and ignorance that's being spouted by people that you know that that's what we face constantly and uh, to admit that is to kind of say that no everything's fine we're getting on just swell um that's not you know real so i wanted to bring that in for that reason and, and what are the other films so uh we're kick-starting the season on the fifth with uh toshio matsumoto's funeral parade of roses uh which i'm very excited about um, which is, you know, just incredibly experimental, super punky, mm. um, lots of cartoon speech bubbles. Uh, I just can't wait to see that on the big screen. And then uh, Dress to Kill will be the next one. Following on from that, we've got uh, Sally Potter's Orlando. Uh, Sorry, I was just going to say, I mean, such a landmark, groundbreaking film, because mm. I remember when that was released. As I remember when Dress to Kill was released, that's how that's how long I've been here. Um, but yeah, I mean, a real sort of groundbreaking film, Orlando, and mm. again, really pleased to see that in the selection. Yeah, it was it was actually one of those sort of um, almost accidental inclusions. Like I had it on my kind of list, but I remember when I pitched it to the both of you um, some months ago, and. Uh, Obviously, we're going to be speaking more about Joyland, but Joyland was kind of like something I wanted to include in this season. And then it just sort of coincidentally happened to be screening around the end of the month. Um, so I got that extra slot and Orlando just seemed like a real perfect fit. Mm -hmm. um, it also, after Funeral Parade and Dress to Kill, was a slightly lighter offering, I felt. And 
um, kind of presented things from a different perspective um, where it's kind of like a female to male and um, you know just this sort of more gender ambiguity thing going on um, also just you know Virginia Woolf is uh, probably one of my favorites mm. um, I'm a literature student and uh, I spent many days <laughs> pouring through that book in in the past mm. and of course Tilda Swinton Mm. on screen I mean um, it's just it, it was a kind of real it really catapulted her um, in terms of her sort of star persona um, you know, obviously she'd done stuff before um, that was that was a strong but Orlando really did it was kind of again say groundbreaking uh, in terms of her performance and that gender ambiguity um, I believe that you know that that's kind of like the ultimate performance for Tilda Swinton where uh, she became this kind of androgynous persona that a lot of yeah. filmmakers were seeking out and, um, you know, it certainly helped her career quite mm-hmm. considerably. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's just this sort of very ethereal presence that she brings to the screen in that one in particular. And I believe it's on 35 mil. It is indeed. Another added, added um, pleasure there. So that's three films. What's What's the final film that you're screening? The final film in the season, we um, have Girls Lost, uh, which is something that I had previously seen here at Watershed about eight years ago, I want to say. And uh, thematically, it links on very nicely with Orlando. I'd read an interview with the director, um, Alexandra Therese Koenig, if uh, I'm pronouncing that correctly. where she was sort of elaborating on it and it's sort of a very loose adaptation of Virginia Woolf's book as well and um, was very much inspired by Sally Potter's Orlando. Uh, So, you know, we've just got this lovely sort of thread and it's speaking a bit more to a different audience um, from the other films. Uh, It's very teen dramery, it's a bit angst, um, it's got quite a beautiful soundtrack uh, Fever Ray is featuring on that one and uh, it's yeah it's a real delight to have that one in the season honestly and and you're going to be doing a you're going to be around for the screenings mm-hmm. obviously you're going to you're going to be doing short introduction and then you'll be in the cafe bar uh, here at Watershed for audiences if they want to come and discuss the films more yes that that I will um, I think that the, the reason that I wanted to do the introductions and the post-screening discussions is um, kind of linking back to what I was saying on Dress to Kill is that there's a lot of issues with some of these films that need unpacking and um, the whole purpose of that is to kind of, you know, hear these varying perspectives and mm. address the concerns mm. that... Um, I have, and I'm sure other people will have around these films. Because it is, going back to Dress to Kill, it's often the problematic ones that actually allow or create the discussion Mm. that you can get to, you know, some more understanding, as it were, of what representations are and what they mean. Um, So there's a really good um, development there over the four Sundays, um, I think, for hopefully people will kind of come along to all of them. Um, and engage in uh, in that discussion, but as I was saying um, earlier, the the 
well, the context, as it were, in terms of programming, is that this new film, Joyland, uh, is coming out, which just fits really, really nicely within this kind of exploration of um, identity and gender. Mm-hmm. Um, have you seen it? I have, yeah. And um, as I was uh, saying before, you know, Joyland's been on my radar for a mm-hmm. while. Um, and this this time with the season, it's just perfect. You know, you kind of couldn't wish for a better film to be included here. Um, literally groundbreaking, causing massive waves um, in its native country in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, as you mentioned, it's been banned or um, at this point, if it has been released and censored quite heavily for its content. I, I think it's been, what I understand is it's it, it, it was banned, unbanned because of, I, th- I think, um, I don't exactly know the process, but certainly a lot of the international, when you're winning the, the, the prize in Cannes, being nominated for Oscars, um, you, you, you know, the, 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 the powers that be, obviously, you know, I think thought, you know, with that kind of acclaim, you know, the film getting released. But it's not uh, clear to me if it's available everywhere because I gather it's n- not released in um, the province of the directors. Not because of the director, I think, but just, you know, that's a coincidence. But um, So it's it's not available everywhere is the impression I, I get, but it, but it is on in some cinemas. And apparently some of the feedback has been, you know, response to the film has been really great from, um, you know, people watching it. Um, because it is challenging the sort of representations and in, mm. in, in Pakistan, so it's it's caused a lot of uh, discussion and debate there. For sure, um, and I think the interesting thing about Joyland in particular is that it's not strictly a, a transgender story. Mostalina um, Khan is um, this very um, present trans character. Mm. It certainly revolves more around this sort of family dynamic in Pakistan and mm. um, speaks more to the kind of traditional values, the patriarchal values of mm. family there. Mm. And it's 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 a um, you know husband, son, father um, figure who's really you can tell he's unsure and uncertain of of his place within that family dynamic. And as you say, the kind of strong. Uh, patriarchal um, families in Pakistan who develops a relationship with the transgender performer um, that sort of makes him realise that there's more, I mean going back to Corrida as it were, <laughs> makes him realise that, that, that there's more to the fa- or how constrictive the family can be, the traditional family, and how there's more possibilities outside of um, the family because there's great scenes uh, uh, I remember of um, the performers together and their kind of um, sense of community, strong sense of community that the performers have. Um, whereas you go to the family and it's like, there's this patriarch at the centre of it that's, mm. that's ruining everybody's life, you know. First of all, the, the scenes with the family in particular, there's just this kind of mounting tension, like mm. the scenes where they're gathered around the dinner table, it all mm. feels very orchestrated and very formal. Um, and then you go into the scenes in the theatre and it's you know quite liberating, yeah. and there's all this colour and yeah. vibrancy to it. So. Some great dancing, mm, absolutely fabulous. Yeah. Um, so that opened um, middle of Feb, and we're, we're absolutely delighted that we've got the director Sam Sadiq uh, coming on the ninth of Feb. Ninth of Feb, and you're going to be hosting that Q and A. So that'll be um, that's great. 
so thank you very much, Harry. Look forward to the season this month and Joyland opening. Thank you. Thanks. Two great seasons in this month um, with two related uh, releases, but we have more um, new releases happening in February, obviously. What's coming up, Steph? Well, starting in early Feb, we're opening The Whale on February 3rd, the new film starring Brendan Fraser, which has been doing the rounds at festivals, and we've been getting a lot here of, um, as part of the LFF on that, tour. That's right, and, and it's, it's one of the kind of um, everybody's tipping Brendan Fraser to be winning awards in the awards season. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see come the Oscars especially how much impact that makes. And it's been quite controversial. I mean, it's not It's not had a... It's not been wholly well received. Yeah. There's been quite a dialogue around its representation of like fatness on screen. Yeah. Um, there's been quite a lot of writing that's come out around that. Um, and it's definitely one that I think leads to discussions around those kind of representations on screen. But also mm. for me, it's an interesting case of like, like um, Florian Zeller's film, uh, The Father, from a couple of years ago yeah. now. Um, and it's been adapted from a, a stage play um, and in a way that you, you can kind of <laughs> really feel that. And it does lead you to question what bringing it to the screen has, has mm. offered it um, that wasn't possible on the stage. Perhaps um, I don't want to spoil anything, but no, I, I've not seen it yet. And uh, I mean, the the main thing that I kind of have absorbed about it is it's it, is it's about Brendan Fraser's kind of coming back as a performer that he's been away for um, however many years, and and it's about the performance and of course you know what Hollywood loves and what what we all love is a redemption story and mm. it seems like you know from the kind of perform performance performance side that um the acting side it's it's a celebration of kind of brendan fraser being back but i around that is is of the stories about you know the content and you know what it's about and potential um controversy around the subject matter so that's um the whale which as we say is um been nominated for a number of uh, awards and the same week on Feb 3rd, we're also opening Alice Diop's new feature, her first debut fiction feature, San Omer. Um, and she's moved across from her documentary making um, into the realm of fiction here with this tight kind of courtroom drama, effectively. Um, which, which comes we, from a but, true, which, yeah. sorry, which comes from a, a true story, true yeah. incident. I mean, she's still, she's still got the documentary Edge to sort it. of sensibility <laughs> to it in terms of, because you, you feel in the courtroom that you are hearing um, real transcript. You, know, mm. feel, if you do feel like you're there in the courtroom, which kind of is, I guess, testament to her documentary Background, sensibility. Yeah. yeah. Uh, also this month is EO, uh, which is onomatopoeic. You should be saying it. It is the sound of a donkey. Uh, EO is probably how it should be uh, said. So it should be... Whenever we talk about this film, we're saying we are showing Jersey Skolomowski's new film. E-O. I'm not sure it's going to take off, Mark. <laughs> I want, try and make it I want box office, down at box office people to be asking tickets to say E-O, um, which is a film, um, it, 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 fantastic, um, crazy documentary. Uh, is it documentary? Um, fantasy documentary, it's everything. From the 80-plus-year-old uh, legendary Polish director Jerzy Skolomowski, which looks at 
humanity's failings through the eyes of a donkey. Um, there's a hat tip to Bresson's Ohazard Balthazar, um, and I'm sure there's a going to be a season of donkey films, life through the Je- eye. Jenny from Banshees of Inner Sharon. Yeah, yeah so the, the donkeys, and, and it's interesting because I, I came across a news article which said that donkey sanctuaries um, get the most money from people's wills than any other charity. In the UK? Could be the UK, could be wider, it could be more than a, a UK phenomenon, but... Um, you know, that fact that you realise the hold that a donkey has, and of course, we can go back to we can go back to the, the Christian um, tradition and the donkeys and birth of Christ uh, was present there at that. And this is this I think is this donkey was probably there, um, and is <laughs> is telling us that we've taken a bit of a sorry path um, in the two thousand plus years since, which it, it, it is a real kind of visual trip. Um, as I say, through the eyes of a donkey, and uh, thoroughly recommended. And we're also um, holding a thought in action discussion screening of that title on February tenth, which is part of our um, partnership with UE Philosophy, where we hold panel discussions um, involving philosophy students after some screenings of films throughout the first half of the year, which we started this month with Tar. And if if ever there was a, a film that was worth discussion, it is EO. Um, I think it will be it'll be really interesting to hear people's responses to it. Also, Marcel the Shell. With shoes on. <laughs> I, I, I keep forgetting that he Marcel has, has shoes on. Yeah. And Marcel the Shell with shoes on, which a colleague of ours, um, another staff in comms department, alerted us to, feels like a year ago. Yeah, and say. continuously um, <laughs> since, which is, it's A24's... Um, it's, it's from the A24 stable who gave us everything everywhere all at once um, last year. And they, they do just absolutely superb marketing, A24. So hats off to them for that because this film has registered with their colleague <laughs> a year ago and has registered with us. Um, I, I've only seen the trailer and uh, I, I think it's going to be, um, I think it's going to be a real hit. It, it, it follows the, the life of um, and uh, stop frame and in stop frame animation, the life of, or not so much the life, but the challenges of um, young Marcel the Shell with shoes on. Um, and going back to earlier discussion, um, it really does follow on because it explores, it actually explores the idea of the family, is what it, it feels to me and Marcel trying to find um, his wider family group. And mm. I think it deals with a lot of issues in what seems like a kind of um, smuggles a lot of issues into what's, you know, Quite what is a kind of play, yeah, essentially. Yeah. So features the voice of Isabella Rossellini. <laughs> Big name. Which which um, is always worth listening to. <laughs> so that's um, a quick scamper around um, some of the films that are opening in February. We should also say that our good friends at Slapstick Film Festival will be um, slapsticking, will be pratfalling um, at various cinemas across and venues across Bristol for the annual celebration of all things on-screen comedy. But that's us for this month. Thank you very much, Steph. Thanks, Mark. Thank you very much, Raina and Harriet.